0: You're listening to the Everyday Athlete Podcast, Episode 9, the podcast for everyday athletes everywhere, in association with 97 Display. Welcome to the Everyday Athlete, the podcast for everyday athletes everywhere. You're now part of an exciting movement of adventurous everyday
1: athletes who want to train smarter and live to 100 years old.
0: Now, here's your host, Josh Kennedy. Welcome to the Everyday Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Kennedy. It's great to make you part of a growing community trying to change the world through health and fitness who like to train differently, train smarter, and live a healthy and fulfilling lifestyle. If you want to take a step away from the mainstream, this podcast will give you an insight into the daily life of an everyday athlete and we look forward to you joining us. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're new to the podcast, it is great to have you here. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, just a couple of quick things. If you're enjoying the podcast and you've got a spare five minutes, please get yourself onto iTunes and give us a quick review. We'd really, really appreciate it, and it helps push us up the iTunes charts. Also, don't forget to get yourself onto the App Store or onto Google Play and download the Strength Matters app. That way, you can access the Strength Matters magazine Uh, blog and all of our podcast episodes okay in today's episode i speak to world-renowned back specialist dr Stuart mcgill it's an absolute honor absolute pleasure to speak to him he is a wealth of information and i'm going to keep this intro short because basically the material speaks for itself it's quite simple as that so grab your pen grab your paper and um at one point we actually talk about the delicate subject of sex at my guest today is a professor of spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo where he has a laboratory and clinic that explores low back me- mechanics, injury mechanisms, rehabilitation protocols and performance enhancement. He has been the author of hundreds of scientific journal papers and his work has received numerous international awards. As a consultant, he has provided expertise on low back injury to various government agencies corporations legal firms and professional international athletes and teams worldwide he's the author of several books including lower back disorders evidence-based prevention and rehabilitation ultimate back fitness and performance and back mechanic a huge fantastic warm welcome to dr Stuart mcgill dr mcgill welcome to the everyday athlete podcast
1: well good morning uh josh and uh first of all look we know each other well enough now let's drop the doctor stuff and from here on in it's stew <laughs> you,
0: you did that you did that fantastically as if we hadn't practiced it before <laughs> 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 thank
1: you for that Stuart. how are you doing i'm fantastic fantastic it's uh i believe plus four Out there now, we've hit the positive side of freezing here in Canada, so uh, uh, (laughs) it's a good day.
0: Whereabouts in Canada are you?
1: Well, I'm about uh, two and a half hours north of uh, Toronto. Uh, As as you know, I was a professor at the University of Waterloo for 32 years. Uh, I left the university at Christmas, and uh, I don't miss... Uh, teaching every day i can tell you and uh, now i'm i'm just a, a consultant but uh professors they never really retire you know and I, everyday people call and <laughs> my wife jokes they want to rent my mind she doesn't know why but apparently they do <laughs> so,
0: uh, i think most of the people listening can can uh will know why so you haven't you've You've sort of retired but not quite officially retired because you've you've always been uh, pulled back into the university they, they, they don't want to let you go
1: No no uh, it, it's not the university it's uh, people uh, around the world uh, athletes and and patients with uh, back pain that is is still mysterious to them and they need a bit of guidance to know precisely what the cause is. All black pain has a cause. You know, this idea, it's, it's, it's nonspecific and it's um, a mysterious or it's in their head. This just uh, is, is not true. Everybody has a reason for any kind of pain. Pain isn't normal and it's a matter of assessing it. So that, that's what uh, the bulk of uh, the requests for my time uh, are all about now.
0: And I remember um, the first time we spoke last year, you were booked to like, oh God, I don't know, nearly 2018 solidly booked up. Is that still the case?
1: I'm booked into ni- uh, 2019 at the moment for uh, public speeches. And yeah.
0: Fantastic. Right. Well, let's uh, let's crack on. Let's rock and roll. We've got lots of uh, topics to cover. Me and you have been back and forth a little bit, and I've also uh, reached out to a couple of the Strength Matters community. So we got some fantastic questions uh to cover uh but before we do that could you just tell us a little bit more about your background um how you got into biomechanics and how you came to dedicate yourself to the study of lower back pain
1: well it's not a story that uh many people uh think uh it was it was pure luck and just uh fate i guess Uh, I I was never university material. I I was really interested in sport and went to university uh, originally for that reason. But then met some wonderful professors who turned me on to uh, mathematics, physics, and then after that, anatomy and and function of this amazing linkage, this musculoskeletal system that we carry. So I became interested in uh, school, and then uh, I went on to uh, do a master's degree and uh then for a phd i was actually going to go into systems engineering but i met a professor uh at a hockey game i was playing hockey for the for the uh university professors team at the time and uh, he said come and visit my lab and and, and we were starting uh, spine biomechanics and and that's really how i got into it it was just dumb luck but uh Obviously, I I, uh, obtained my uh, PhD in spine biomechanics, Uh, so I was trained formally as a scientist. But uh, people wonder, how did all of this clinical part of my life begin? Well, I would be asked to go to orthopedic meetings or neurology meetings, and uh, the docs in the audience would say, you know, that's a very interesting mechanism that you just described. Would you see a patient with us? And I would say, well, no, I'm not. I'm not trained to see patients. they said, well, don't worry about it. We'll be with you. Come and see this patient and tell us what you see. And I found out very quickly that my approach and and the scientific approach uh, was different than the formal medical education. And we would see things that they hadn't thought about before. And I became much more comfortable with patients. And uh, the, 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 the funny thing is now I, I, I lecture and, and speak at, at, Many medical schools around the world, they, they'll they say, would you come in and see three patients in front of our uh, surgeons and clinical fellows and, and staff? Uh, we want to see how you do an assessment. And then at the end, they'll say, wow, we, we don't think that way. You, you uncovered a lot more of the mystery as to why that person uh, has pain. So that's how this uh, breadth of clinical and scientific uh, work evolved. And I, I must say that it's been a wonderful synergy. So I, I get to interpret patients through this scientific method, you know, peeling the onion one layer after another uh, as I probe, and, and really study the mechanism of their pain, and then, on the other hand, working with the patients give me a perspective to know what to then go and probe in the laboratory. Do you see one feeds the other, yes. and uh, it's a very efficient way to work, but it's a rather unique way to work uh, in the world as well so that's that's the whole story uh, and I'd uh
0: some. It must be an ever-evolving process each time you see someone, it informs your your methods.
1: Well, when I'm with students, I say, you treat that that, that, uh, patient as the topic of study because they are going to teach you so much. And you're exactly right. Very wise. Every patient has something to teach you. And uh, you just keep studying them, so to speak, and uh, you will get to the bottom of why they have uh, pain eventually.
0: I think that's, yeah, eventually. I think that's the first time I've ever been called wise. Uh, And (laughs) I'm going to take that as a huge compliment coming from you. (laughs) And and before we started recording, we were talking about that, you know, you are incredibly busy. You've been on the road for 20 odd years uh, around the world. And now you're you're looking at passing on the torch, and you have others who are starting to teach your courses.
1: Yes, uh, I uh, true. I get many more requests to put on courses than I can possibly deliver. So uh, I have uh, Joel Proskovitz in in London, your town, and uh, he teaches the McGill for for trainers. Uh, uh course plus my assessment course he's become a fantastic diagnostician and then i have dr ed cambridge uh, here in canada who teaches the first level of of the mcgill course which is sort of an introduction to uh how the spine works and becomes injured a little bit on assessment and then a little bit on foundational training to build a pain-free foundation and uh he also teaches the uh uh, assessment course as well. So yes, it's uh, lots of fun, and uh, I, I'm also uh, developing clinicians to speak in other languages as well. The, uh, the my, my book back mechanic is is now in something like twelve different languages around the world. Wow,
0: that's incredible! That's absolutely incredible. That's yeah. Incredible. Uh, well, as we said um, before, we start recording again. That you are coming over to London to do uh, a course with with Joel Proskowicz. We don't know exactly when that date is right now, but uh, listeners, I will find out for you and I will get it on the show notes or on the website somewhere. Right, let's uh, crack on. So could you discuss the general approach that addresses back issues in the athlete and weekend warrior, please?
1: Yes. Um, Well, each patient or person, let's call them a person, a pained person, they're different. And there's no such thing as nonspecific pain. There's always a cause. And, you know, I get so dismayed. I've worked in your country where there is this uh, a little bit of an attitude sometimes among clinicians that, oh, the pain is in your head. Or, uh, you know, just do go to Pilates class. Uh, so they're really dismissed. Um, but uh, this, this it doesn't help one little bit. There is a cause, find it. So number one in the process is assess the pain mechanism. Number two, it isn't about doing exercise yet. It's about eliminating the precise cause because tissues get sensitized so that little things tick them off and they, they scream with pain. So the second stage is eliminate the cause and wind down the pain sensitivity, which builds a capacity to train. Then the third bit is to be wise now and judicious. Now build a pain-free foundation for movement, and uh, these follow principles of uh, human skeletal function uh, you must build a little bit of spine stability, a little bit of hip and shoulder mobility um, but everyone's different they have uh, this injury uh, different injury history, uh, different body segment proportions, different injury history, uh, different pain mechanisms, a uh, different age. Uh, different goals, all of these things. So the wise clinician considers all of these and comes up with the customized approach. But uh, I mean, I'm not here to, to, to plug my books, but that really is the essence of Back Mechanic. Um, that book I wrote for the lay public was to guide them through a self-assessment and then based on their specific pain triggers that they can identify, they now have a roadmap of what not to do and then what to do.
0: Fantastic. Feel free to to plug your books all you want. I'm absolutely fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here. We're here to promote you. It's not. It's not about me. I'm just a a monkey with an iPad. That's all I am. Um, I've got a I great will. little quote. Um, I'm not sure what website it's from actually, but I think it's from another podcast you did. Uh, where you say there is no such thing as non-specific back pain. As you said, there is a, always a causal mechanism that, when understood, will guide an appropriate intervention. Right. So what are some of the most common mechanisms for back injury and how do we prevent or avoid them?
1: That's a huge question, but let me start this way. And let's ask the question, well, what is back injury? Uh, What we're talking about here is pain that creates an intolerance to specific loads, specific postures and specific motions. Most people are able to find a position where the pain decreases and they find different positions uh and motions and loads that increase their pain so uh, to to keep expanding on this concept the tissues in their back being discs and end plates and ligaments and muscles etc they become sensitized now the pain sensitization means they are irritated now they might be damaged or irritated at the micro level Or at a much larger level, and we might see end plate disruption or delamination of disc collagen, Um, but it's so interesting that radiologists aren't trained to look for this little micro damage, and it's it's missed, and then the patient gets the report back, or the consulting doc gets the report back, and it says, well, we can't find anything wrong with this person, they've got degenerative disc disease, Mm -hmm. which does not exist. Right. It, to, to, to tell someone they have a disease, can you imagine going to your mother-in-law and saying, hi, mom, I see you've got degenerative face disease because she has a few wrinkles. <laughs> you know, it's, oh it's a terrible thing. And I get poor patients coming into me, oh, I've got disc disease. And I say, you don't have a disease. Your discs are getting a, a little older, as we all are. And if you treat them appropriately, you'll be fine, you know. Yeah. But uh, a- another concept on, on this definition of injury in the process is most back injuries are from cumulative trauma. They're not from single events. Now, they might say, well, I, you know, I was doing gardening and that threw my back out. And, but really, they set themselves up over time. And it I, was had the, some, uh, I had
0: out. someone say that exact set thing to me yesterday. He said, I've got a pain in my back. How do you do? It? I was bending over gardening. That's crazy.
1: <laughs> right. Well, no, it isn't. Uh, so, so let's keep following this concept. This takes us now to a discussion of adaptation. So, your listeners are aware that there is a tipping point. You can stress tissues, and they, at the micro level, break down just a little bit. But that breaking down means the tissues will now adapt, and they will adapt in a positive way the bone for example you build mineral density in the bone the muscles and connective tissue become a bit stronger up until the tipping point when you pass the tipping point the cumulative trauma adds And it slowly builds to the point that it becomes symptomatic. So now this notion of a tipping point, loading is good, but not too much and not too little. Um, But when you cross that tipping point, you're going to pay. So if it's cumulative trauma leading up to the tipping point, one of the biggest tricks, the second part of your question was how to prevent this is, have you built in the appropriate time of rest to allow a positive adaptation so again most people think just oh let's let's set a record a personal best and let's get on and set the next personal best Mm -hmm. that's not realizing that after you've set a personal best now you should adapt take a rest period and you build this in with training cycles so train for a couple of weeks take a few days off train for you know what i mean and this is the professionalism in training Training that really ensures this continual positive adaptation and not crossing the uh, uh tipping point so it, the prevention train in cycles make sure you have rest periods uh, another uh general uh recommendation would be move well avoid the cumulative trauma as much as you can while you're training um, practice better spine hygiene through the day. So when you sit at the computer for a few hours at work, use a lumbar support, uh, brushing your teeth, uh, tying your shoe. If you—if that triggers discomfort, use your hips. And again, the back mechanic shows uh, all of these strategies. Um, another very well-documented risk factor is when people are training they get greedy and they try and progress too quickly um if and, and and that is a known period where the cumulative trauma runs ahead of the positive adaptation and then they're in trouble again with pain so uh wise programming and, uh, you know, on the Internet, it's, it's quite popular now. Well, you're not a real woman until you can uh, deadlift your body weight. Well, now it's gone so extreme. You're not a real woman until you can deadlift twice your body weight. Well, hold on. You know, for certain people, lifting twice your body weight is is not a bad thing. But they are grand old men and women of powerlifting, and they've they've spent twenty years earning the right to lift <laughs> to double their their body weight. It's not a stay-at-home mom with you know who had a kid last year and pop <laughs> you know,
0: to the gym and whack that weight on the bar and
1: away you go. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, so those are all generic principles to guide this uh, notion of training well and avoiding injury, but I can give you some specific ones as well. Um, if we take some of your older uh, listeners, for example, the master's athletes, generally speaking, the categories of their pain will fall more into the arthritic uh categories and there'll be motion losses uh say, say they've uh, uh got a little bit of facet arthritis or, f- or, or flatter discs and moving back in an extension and twisting triggers their back pain well uh, un- unfortunately i would love to do things that i did when i was in my 20s but you know now i'm in my 60s i have a capacity to train that has been diminished It's the way it is. And the wisdom comes when you realize where that sweet spot is for training. Too much, you will pay the price. Too little, you start losing function. Our job is to keep what we have for as long as we can. So you'll learn that wisdom. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Pavel Satsulin. Yep. The, the the kettlebell master because you're a kettlebell man mm-hmm. and uh p- people don't realize that pavel's father is the american uh deadlift champion for men over i think it's 75 might be older than that now and when you watch the wisdom of his training because he picks 400 pounds off the ground then he's <laughs> I, I think he might be 80 now um but the point is He's a master's athlete, and he trains appropriately. After every lift under Pavel's guidance, he restores. He hangs from a bar to decompress, or he does a little bit of a decompression uh, stretch. Um, So there's just an example of an older athlete and their strategy to prevent the disabling pain. But let's take a younger example now, probably more popular in your listenership. Say they have discogenic pain. So they sit at the computer for a few hours or they garden or do something like that. And now they have back pain and it's back pain to the point where it's limiting their training. Well, what they could do is what they do the other 23 hours a day when they're not training is really important. Sit using a lumbar support, use their hip, uh, uh, hips to uh, hip hinge. You may have heard of Brian Carroll. He uh, had a, a squat record in, in powerlifting, the, the great American lifter, yeah. but then he had a horrible, horrific spine injury, uh, compressive injury. Anyway, we, we worked together. We did what we called experimental bone callusing, and, and uh, long story short, He came back to set uh, another uh, record and we're writing a book together. It'll be out this summer on that whole process. Yeah. And uh, a big part of it was to get him to recall, treat his back well throughout the day. And he built a bigger training capacity simply by not picking the scab all day long. So there's a a little bit of uh, wisdom uh, actually, uh, I-, I can think of a third example, uh, uh, and, and that would be of, of a jiu-jitsu player. So uh, people are aware of, uh, jujitsu, uh, athletes who have to have a lot of of spine mobility yeah. and you know many of them they'll get up in the morning and they'll press their hands and the palms of their hands flat to the floor getting lots of flexion stretching going and whatnot and you know this is fine they will do really well till they're 23 or 24 years of age and then after t- that amount of time that many of them they get close to that tipping point and that Method of training, while it suited them when they were younger, they don't have the capacity for that anymore. So, what we do with them is we get them to avoid that mechanism, and then all of a sudden they're able to train now. And we say, well, you know, you, you do have this limited capacity, avoid that and keep it for the octagon or, or, or keep it for the uh, jujitsu uh, uh, training itself. And then all of a sudden they're back training again and competing. So you know it, it's it's there's no single answer, but once again, if you use science and understanding of all of these mechanisms, you'll come up with an appropriate strategy for that person's triggers and uh, uh, get them back training under that magical tipping point.
0: Fantastic. So for for those people who uh, perhaps office workers and spend a long time sitting, as you say, you know, using lumbar back support is a is a really good method. But also, would you recommend just eating something as simple as getting up and walking around every, every hour or so as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no substitute and, and walking people don't realize how important walking is. And when you get, consider this, how many times in traditional uh, gymnasium training center exercises, do they stand on one leg to develop frontal plane strength? We measured world-class strongman competitors and they they do things like suitcase carries uh getting under the super yoke and carrying a thousand pounds and see how far they can carry it when you stand on one leg and allow leg swing on the other you that turns on one side of your back muscles the very important muscle called quadratus lumborum and the oblique muscles. Well, how often do you train? You know, you don't do it in bench press or deadlift or Olympic lifting. Those, your feet are on the ground. Uh, but how often do you get up and walk in the training room? So walking is a very low level frontal plane strength, essential for back health. Uh, and and of course, then add a loaded uh, carries, uh, you know, a, a kettlebell suitcase carry, for example, would be a wise progression in the gym. So that's that's one uh, part of it, and the other part of it is you disrupt the cumulative irritation of the discs and tissues that you've built up for sitting for an hour by getting up and going for a walk, and you. Re- set that stress clock we've measured this i'm not talking through my hat here (laughs) you you measurably reduce the disc stress so it's these are all great wisdoms and and the tricks of training your body uh to be pain-free
0: that's it there you go guys get up move about don't sit for too long training cycles and rest rest is absolutely vitally uh important Fantastic. Right. Next question. How do we create the most uh, efficient path from where the athlete is to where they need to be taking into account their current capabilities, uh, demands of the sport and setting goals?
1: Yes. Well, there's an algorithm to guide this a scientific process, as there is with just about everything we do. And it's real simple. There's three steps. The first step is to assess the demands of the sport, know what it is that you need to do that sport and then number two is assess either yourself or the individual for the abilities that you just identified as being necessary now you know what is required you know what you have and you don't have the third part is now train the difference so so let's use an example to give context to this let's take a power lifter a power lifter needs a stiffened spine they need tuned mobility. They don't need loose hamstrings. They need the hamstrings to be as tight as possible at the beginning of the pull, so you get elastic recoil plus the the active uh, strength out of the muscle. But they want to be very elastically tight at the bottom of the squat. They don't want to be loose. Um, they need uh, let's see. They need good hand grip. They need uh, hip uh, appropriate hip mobility. They don't need any endurance at all. So. Now that you've identified those are uh, the necessary fitness variables to be a power lifter, go measure the person for those variables. And you will see, guess what? They don't have sufficient uh, grip strength. They will never be able to use their lifting strength until they get their hands. So train their hands. Anyway, you see what I mean? You, you know what they need. You identify the uh where they're sufficient and insufficient in the person now you organize the training program so it creates a very efficient way to train It, it also creates another uh well efficiency on another level we all have a finite capacity we can only train so much that's just the way it is so this way, when you're training the things that matter most, you get the greatest efficiency to getting to where you need to be uh, in the in the most uh, efficient way. So there it is, three 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 components to the process. But there's the algorithm that will pretty much guarantee efficiency for everybody.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Now this next question, you uh, you wrote about this in your email to me originally. I was like, I don't even know what that is. So. I'm going to be learning something as well. Um, What is neural wisdom and how does it relate to back health? Ah,
1: okay. Well, now we're switching into my uh, other book, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. So there's two general thoughts uh, when it gets to neural wisdom. Um, Consider this. Your spine. Spine is a flexible rod. It's a stack of bones that's a bit wonky. Well, on one hand, it's wonderful because it allows you to dance, it allows you to move and gyrate around. We measured Middle Eastern belly dancers who have the most amazing flexible spines you can imagine, but, be, yeah. <laughs> but not one of them could do a sit up. It was incredible how from a strength point of view how weak they were but when you think about it it made perfect sense you can't have a lot of strength and then have that much mobility because uh the collagen of the discs of your spine if you want to be mobile and you know be a pretzel and have all the ability to move around uh, you 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 actually adapt the collagen to be very loose and flexible but if you then ask that very, very flexible noodle to bear a lot of compressive load, it collapses. So you can't have it both ways. When you look at measure athletes who bear heavy load, they have to adapt stiff collagen in their back, which means they can no longer be a belly dancer or a yoga master. In other words, you have to pick one to adapt the tissues in the most appropriate way. But now let's get back to the the neural wisdom aspect of it. We all have a blend between stiffness and stability in the spine and mobility and we tune it because we all have different requirements for for that balance. So you now tune the muscles to play an orchestral song. Uh some people need great motor wisdom to coordinate all of those muscles to Uh, allow it to bear load as it moves others just stiffen it down brace and, and lock it as say a power lifter might so that's one aspect of neural wisdom and different people need different amounts but a common theme is those who do not have appropriate neural wisdom make motor control mistakes and cause local stresses in their back And when we measure this, it's no wonder why they have specific triggers in their back pain. So with those types, we try and incorporate this neural wisdom uh, training into their back. But now I'm going to take another view on this idea of neural wisdom. As you know, I've measured some top athletes in in quite a number of, of professional sport and Olympic sport. It's So interesting that the the public thinks the strongest athletes are the best athletes. Not so. The best athletes in different sports are are the pulsers, the ones who have pulsing strength. Um, Let me give you an example uh, of that. Consider, you know what the UFC is, the fight league that's become very popular yeah okay well i've measured the strike force of of some of these these uh some of the greatest ones and then some of the ones that uh, let's contrast the guy with big muscles really an impressive looking beast but when you measure them striking on on a force transducer they push their punches with muscle Mm. and they don't hit very hard the ones who hit the hardest are the very quick strikers and and the the contact of the fist is over microseconds but it's such a, a a very sharp impulse but they don't use muscle the guys with the big muscles push the punches and it's a slower longer duration strike but now i have to back up and talk about muscle physiology here for a minute when you activate muscle it creates muscle force but it also creates muscle stiffness, stiffen your bicep or or activate your bicep. You can't move your elbow. But in order to move your elbow, you create a pulse of force and then you let it go and the arm flies. So to get high velocity out of the fist or the foot or a golf club or anything, it is dependent on the rate of how quickly can you produce the pulse and then how quickly can you get the pulse to relax. So when we measure these, these athletes who are Fantastic at their sport. They don't test to be the best bench pressers and the best squatters, unless, of course, they're powerlifters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the ones who, who hit harder, run faster, turn quicker, are the ones who have faster onset and relaxation rates of muscles. They're better muscle pulsers. So now, I mean, just something that came into my mind now, you know, when you think of the Olympic lifts and uh, the Olympic snatch, for example, um, the athlete creates a pulse and rips the bar off the ground. But then very quickly at the top of the pull, they go into a phase where they don't pull anymore and the gravity is acting on the bar and they've got to snap under the bar for the catch if they have residual tension in their body they're stiff and slow and they lose the lift they have to completely relax to get the speed to get under the bar and then catch it and uh, that's the wonderful discipline uh, that you get from that kind of training. I mean, how crazy do you have to be to have a 100 kilos over your head and relax quickly to get underneath it? So you see, it's a mind game. yeah, definitely. And it's a very powerful way to teach the discipline of relaxation. And if you're into uh, jujitsu training at all, and you train with the, the masters, and I think of, you know, the, the, the whole Gracie uh, philosophy to, to training and how much of it is based on fluid flow and, and uh, relaxation and you relax into your strength and use pulsing techniques. Um, it's brilliant and uh, very much an example of uh, uh, how the great ones use these pulses. But anyway, there's a little essay, I suppose, on on neural wisdom. And uh, if you want, once again, because I know you're a kettlebell guy, um that's exactly what we measure in the uh, kettlebell swing by the way the wisdom that comes by combining the hip hinge and the little pulses that uh, you're familiar with and uh, i can think of some of the kine karate kine techniques that you can put into uh, the swing as well to teach this this great pulsing neural wisdom that we're talking about anyway i'm, I'm digressing <laughs>
0: no, no, i love it I, I, it's absolutely fantastic i'm actually going to skip Uh, I'm going to come back to one question in a minute because we are starting to talk about, you know, kettlebells and um, breathing and, um, as you say, karate and uh, kiais and all that. I was actually, uh, (laughs) I wasn't a a Brazilian jiu-jitsu specialist. I used to do um, Japanese sport jiu-jitsu for about 20 years. I did it for absolutely, absolutely loved it. So those techniques that you're talking about are very appropriate for me, and that's. I wish I was still doing jujitsu. I'm going to have to go back now and uh, develop this neural wisdom and uh, appropriate amount of muscle, I think. But also, um, <laughs> with the... Uh, pre- it, isn't it fun how if, if you, uh, as I said, you know, I'm in my 60s
1: now. I wish I could go back absolutely. and be 20 again and yeah. have my body back <laughs> yeah. and, and, and know a tiny bit about... I wish I listened to my masters back oh. then, but I was too... I, I knew everything back in those oh, days.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I started when I was you know eleven and i thought it was a ninja you know, you know yeah I mean? and i wish i you know, say i wish i could wind back 15 20 years and start again and i'd, I'd be a master now absolutely with we, oh, with things that we know it. nowadays but uh, as you say you know in uh, martial arts we use um this the ki the method of bracing and and breathing can you talk us a little bit about power breathing and uh, how it impacts spinal stability
1: yes um well let's start with the concept that stability comes with compression and that's universal throughout the body so if you want to uh, add stability to a shoulder joint you suck the joint together with coordinated muscle activity around the joint and you can't get away from that and instability comes when you have laxity around the joint and little joint micro movements so that that's a universalism that we can't uh, get around but let's talk about now power breathing Uh, spine stability and athletic performance let's uh, begin with say a static example what i suggest your listeners do as a fun exercise is get with one of their training partners and i want you to shake hands go ahead and shake hands now one measures the grip strength of the other the one who's showing off their grip strength Grip and squeeze their hand as hard as they can. The other person measures it. Now, here's what I want you to do the second time. With your toes and your heels, grip the ground, stiffen your legs, harden your core, and pull down with your pecs and lats. Push your tongue hard to the roof of the mouth, stiffen the neck, get the smile off your face, get a little bit of anger, a little bit of fight or flight going on. And now, Curse your lips very tightly and then create a very small hole. And I'm, I'm going to try and make a sound on the, uh, through the microphone here. If you know what I just did. Yep. Now, do that and compress down through your torso and at the same time deliver that hand squeeze. And you will see how much more competent that strength comes. So there is a first example of power breathing and how it potentiates static strength and there's a lot of mechanisms going on there there's psychological but i i described with the fight or flight and invoking some of the physiological effects but there's also a mechanical composite that's forming uh, in in the muscles and fascia to create a greater overall strength but now i can give a dynamic example uh, Um, I was, uh, I'd I'd done a a course, I, I can't remember what country I was in, but I was at the airport and I was just having a beer uh waiting for my flight and i was uh, the, the tennis match came on and, and the announcer said "Ooh, venus williams is uh, intimidating the uh, opposition today with her great grunt when she was serving you know the kind of as she was serving yeah. well you know i i know a fair bit about this i've measured it and uh she's not in, in uh, intimidating the opposition at all it is creating more miles per hour on our tennis serve and i'll give you an example of this let's consider the pec major which is your bench press chest muscle it spans your shoulder joint so on the distal side on the arm side when that muscle contracts it pulls your arm around in flexion. but on the proximal side it attaches to your rib cage and it bends your rib cage towards your shoulder joint so if you were to push me And all you used was your bench press muscle, your pushing muscle, your arm would push, but your rib cage would leak energy on the proximal side as it bent towards. So you would have a very ineffective push. Mm. However, if you grunted and stiffened down your core on the proximal side of that shoulder joint, 100% of that bench press muscle, the pec muscle, effectiveness would be expressed distal. It would be expressed to the arm, and now you would get an effective push. So when Venus was grunting, she super drives the core compression. Put your your fingers into your abdominal muscles, either side of your navel, but quite wide, and then do what I just did. You just turn. On those muscles. Now that's called super stiffness, and you're super driving the core stiffness, which means every muscle that crosses the hip and every muscle that crosses the shoulder, all of that muscle action gets put into limb speed. It's not wasted on bending the core. So, super stiffening the core adds a few miles an hour onto her uh, tennis racket. So, there's a, a dynamic example of power breathing stability and performance enhancement so there's a, a static and a, a dynamic example but again i can stand by those i've i'm one of the few in the in the world who's measured these mechanisms and uh you know it, it doesn't it get your goat a little bit when when these so-called experts on facebook and whatnot <laughs> declare oh core core stiffness doesn't uh, do anything and uh really th- th- these are children who've never measured this sort of thing and they've never measured a world-class athlete nor have they th- they restored a career and yet they have the gall to get on the uh, internet and tell people that oh no this this stuff doesn't matter are you kidding this is this is
0: athletic performance 101 and that cracks up do you seriously get keyboard warriors as we like to call them uh questioning you on facebook <laughs> i just say how uh, well do i i, how do
1: I, have I- the goal? i, I- I, I don't I have zero capacity to do social media <laughs> uh, well because look you're either doing your work or you're on Facebook you can't yeah, do both. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it, it does become I, I i well what happens is my students or people will tell me oh this guy's taking the mickey out of you for this particular thing i said well uh, how many gold medals has the athletes from this person won <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out they're the world champion in
0: their mother's basement <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. absolutely really well as we say as we've already said we are and uh, we are both huge fans of, uh, of, I love that world champion in your mother's basement. Uh, we're huge fans of, uh, of, of kettlebells. Was it right that, um, you measured talking about this core stability and breathing, uh, you measured Pavel and he had the strongest core out of anyone you measured.
1: Oh, you've got a good memory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Pavel is a, a beast. Uh, he weighs probably 185 pounds, yeah. But uh, you know, I've I've measured top top UFC fighters, heavyweights, big, 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 strong, tough, hard men, uh, world class strong men, uh, pro rugby players. Uh, But when it it gets right down to what that core can do, he is awesome. And that's that's we use that word too much, but uh, at the right time, it's the right word. And uh, so now uh my my logic would go to how does he obtain that and uh i think people should pay attention a little bit to the techniques and he obviously uses a lot of russian techniques there's a great wisdom to them Uh, as you are aware uh the the, the technique of training to stop motion with the core Mm. is the way to create core strength and ability so let, let's take a landmine exercise for example which uh, as you know he's brutally strong with deadlifts and and uh, stopping motion and twist so when you watch pavel and measure him do a landmine exercise which is you take an olympic bar one end is pivoted down to the ground and you rotate the bar from side to side some people twist their core and they do that landmine exercise, which isn't wise in terms of using up capacity of the spine. But what he does, he pivots around his feet. So he locks his rib cage down onto his pelvis, does power breathing, but there's no spine motion, but there's a tremendous twisting torque down his spine that he fights against and doesn't allow the motion. So it's a stop twist strength. And then when you measure his twist strength, it's brutal. So there's such lessons and wisdoms to be uh, learned here. Use the hips; they beat every other joint any day of the week. And uh, you can do brutal strength training on your core if you don't move it. You 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 teach it to stop moving. Mm. And uh, anyway, again, the weekend war, the internet warriors will will. Uh, uh, so really, uh, have
0: you ever measured Pavel? they'll be on it
1: <laughs> yeah have you ever measured uh some of these hard hard athletes and uh, uh, uh well if they have and if they've produced 30 olympic gold medals or whatever the count is i'll listen to them but uh not until then <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So what, what are some of the most um, beneficial kettlebell exercises in your opinion so i like talking i don't Is it it suitcase walks? Is it waiter walks? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I, look, as you know, I don't try
1: and avoid the question. I try and answer with a scientific logic and, um, uh, so my answer has to start with, uh, it depends. Um, and I know you're aware of this, but the audience may not be. Um, we uh, did the first investigations into both the kettlebell swing family and the kettlebell carry family of uh, exercises. We, we published that in the Strength and Conditioning Journal. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the first one that we did on swings, I quoted uh, Brad Gillingham. In the first paragraph, Brad at the time held the world record in raw powerlifting. He'd pulled more weight from the ground, and uh, the story was uh, he had a disc herniation. And you know, so many people think, "Oh God, disc herniation, my life is over." Well, Brad had one, and he credits the kettlebell swing for his recovery. I was working with a, an elite athlete yesterday who told exactly the same story. It locks down the core, it teaches the hip hinge, it builds a little bit of pulsing strength, fantastic. But in that same paragraph, I then quoted another athlete, a very famous strength athlete, and for obvious reasons, I didn't use their name, but he said, I can do anything with my back in terms of load and strength, except the kettlebell swing that's the one thing that tweaks my back. And we wondered why. But when we broke down and really probed the components of the kettlebell swing, imagine this. When you're at the bottom of the swing, it's very similar to a pull of a bar off the ground. There is a ratio between compression and shear load in your back. Now, your spine is architecturally or anatomically built to bear that combination of compression and shear compression itself is stabilizing it helps to lock the spine and then the facet joints etc look after that shear but as you swing the kettlebell through up to horizontal in front of you, the compression reduces and now it becomes a shear load on the spine. And that works the spine, if you know what I mean by that expression. Um, it works it in a shear motion. So, um, and I'll, I'll admit that I love kettlebell swings for two weeks. And after two weeks, my back starts to get a little bit tweaky. And and, uh, you probably know I've had a fair amount of physical trauma in in my life too. And uh, it just starts to tweak my back a little bit, letting me know, hey, that's enough in this training cycle now. And I'm starting to irritate the joints. So what's the test? Uh, We would then uh, say someone asked me, uh am i cleared for kettlebell swings and they're they're coming out of a rehab uh cycle now mm-hmm. uh we would do a prone a sheer prone uh instability test uh if, for people who are interested that in that it's in my my low back disorders textbook for clinicians but uh, nonetheless if
0: you have a video of that on youtube or anything perhaps if people want to look it up
1: um good question i don't think so no, no, but it's it's in the video series that goes along with that textbook, and it isn't uh, an imprecise test. There's quite a fair amount of uh, clinical precision to it, so get it right, and, and you'll get the right answer. But nonetheless, it will show uh, the individual whether they have uh, appropriate tolerance to impose shear load. Um, now, let's say Uh, They don't, but they still want to start off with with some kettlebell swings. Don't get greedy. Choose a very simple load. Um, But now start to use some of the techniques that we've already discussed. Pulsing, stiffness through the core, power breathing, etc. So Pavel, for example, his classic hard style of swing, he swings the kettle through and has a reaches the, the top of the arc, he goes into an Okinawan strength. The pelvis tucks underneath and he stiffens the core down. Well, that might be appropriate for some people to add stiffness to buttress the shear loads. And that's, that's really why he does that. But if, if the person has discogenic pain triggers and flexion in their back triggers their pain, that would be not appropriate. That would probably trigger them. So there, don't go into the hard style kime pulse at the end rather keep your spine neutral as you pull the hips through just stiffen down but don't bend the spine and tuck underneath at the top of the arc if you if if that creates a visual for your for your listeners and that might be an appropriate strategy to to stiffen down that uh, shear so anyway i i hope that gives a, a little bit of uh, a thought on the the the, the swing anyway and uh, i don't know if you want to talk about carries or not but yeah, why, why not? Uh, we sort of did earlier we, yeah, well, well you did, you did uh, mention
0: suitcase carries but let's let's do it again
1: <clears throat> okay um i think i mentioned that when you look at the spectrum of training exercises in the traditional weight room setting they don't challenge frontal plane strength, which is side to side strength yep. of the uh, hips and torso. When we measured world class strongmen doing things like farmers carries, suitcase carries, yoke walks, etc., you do need absolutely a well built and well controlled quadratus lumborum and the obliques. Well, there's no better way to develop that than carries. And, you know, Dan John, uh, a good friend of uh, ours, he's always promoted carries. Dan's a strong dude. I think most
0: of his books, it's him dragging a sled, carry, bear hood carrying I, something.
1: Again. Absolutely. <laughs> It, but, you know, this is this is wise. And think I, if I, I'll, I'll predict if you go back to your jujitsu days, remember master telling you to put a bag of rice over one shoulder and carry it up the stairs? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is age old wisdom. So that, that frontal plane strength, you know, here, I'll give you an example. Take a, a heavy rugby player who you test them and they don't have any pain. And yet they say, you know, when I run down the field and someone's climbing on my back and I plant the left leg and I turn to the right, I cut hard. That is my pain trigger. And then you measure their frontal plane strength and you say, look, son, no wonder you've trained Olympic lifts, you've trained power lifts. When in your life did you get on one leg and hold your pelvic platform up to support your spine? And again, they look blank and they say, son, you better start some heavy carries. <laughs> so that is the way to develop that frontal plane strength. So let, let's put a little progression to this. Uh, take a kettle, a modest kettle, and suitcase carry it. And that will start to begin that uh, frontal plane core strength. You will feel the core tightening up and you may want to coach it a little bit and facilitate it you might want to do some power breathing while while that's occurring and that kind of thing Um, but then move to a racked kettle so now the kettle is carried on the back side of the forearm uh and the fist is about uh let's see you're in england so do i have to talk inches or can i talk centimeters Uh, to you
0: either one we're fine with either one
1: (laughs) okay well let's say 20 centimeters uh eight inches away from your 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 chin carry the kettle racked on your arm it takes the stress out of the shoulder etc but you've increased the lever arm now you need a bit more core control now you you've been successful doing that now let's really get to core control let's go bottoms up so you turn the kettle upside down you're carrying it by the horn you're teaching core strength and then i had this you know this elite athlete i was talking about yesterday we were doing some of this work and the kettle kept sliding out of his hand uh, in, and and he was losing the bottoms up lift and he says oh can i go chalk up and i said no carry it with your core and he said, No, the, 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 the kettle is too slippery. Well, I grabbed it and carried it. He was a bit embarrassed because I carried it. Um, and now, it wasn't because, well, I, I purposefully did just to show to him he was giving me an excuse rather than using science and the principles of athleticism to create the skill of strength you see what i mean he thought magnitude of strength was going to beat skill of strength he was forgetting basic jujitsu 101 and so uh, i showed him again no stiffen your core and now you don't need to grip as hard but when you stiffen your core you will be more successful in carrying the bottoms up kettle. and he finally got it so again it was uh, you know it might seem a bit harsh but i'm old school and you learn the skill of bloody strength instead of you know just you know get out the chalk and and more whatever it is absolute strength now of course you need minimal sufficient strength i get that but uh it's it's the skill of strength and this again we're getting back to neurological wisdom but anyway there's some thoughts about uh kettles carries and uh, swings
0: i <laughs> love it absolutely fantastic as you say it's, it is all about the uh, the skill of strength and it takes time it takes time to develop that skill and i would add on uh, any listeners out there interested in doing carries to do um to do the cook drill i presume you've you know the cook drill where you're starting starting waiters walk over the head you drop it to the rack you drop it to suitcase you uh, you switch arms and you press it back up and you drop it again waiter to rack to to suitcase carry and i think um you need to try and attempt to work your way up to like 15 minutes of that without putting the kettlebell down. Uh, It's absolutely fantastic exercise. So I highly uh, recommend that. Right. uh, I've got a question from uh, one of our members in the Strength Matters community. um, And it's all about the lovely uh, subject of sit-ups um he is a former <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly uh, he's a former royal uh, marine commando and he says um royal marine commandos must pass an anchored sit up test uh, and experienced commandos are encouraged to complete many many anchored sit ups uh, in the guise of core training to prepare uh, for carrying heavy rucksacks. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, and do anchored sit-ups provide any positive effects?
1: Yeah, well, th- again, that's a huge question and th- there's not an absolute yes or no answer, but there's certainly a, uh, a logical process that we can converge on the right answer um just to go back uh you're i get asked that a lot because of my involvement with the military around the world this uh history actually started with the canadian military who went through this analysis uh uh, quite a number of years ago and i was asked to to consult with them and that was the uh medical personnel were starting to suspect that the sit-up uh, requirement for training and testing was linked to higher incidence of uh, back pain and back injury uh, and and the Canadian uh, military went through the process of uh, creating more shall we say functional assessments and uh, training tools yeah, they, they so the, the uh, test, right? they, have they did absolutely, yeah. yeah, and then the American military went through the same process. And it was actually started in the Air Force, and uh, then it went to the Navy, and I was asked to consult with with those two groups. Um, Because once again, the the frontline physical therapists in places like Afghanistan and whatnot were starting to suspect that they were sending soldiers home because of the back pain from doing the uh, daily uh sit-ups and th- then there was a study done uh in uh in the u.s uh, at boot camp where some uh boot camp uh new soldiers uh, did the traditional every day they had to do so many sit-ups and uh but at the end of the uh, boot uh, camp training I, and i forget how long it was whether it was 10 weeks or 12 weeks whatever it was and then the second group trained stir the pot planks uh, exercises that avoided the motion but still trained the core but did it in the pavel, stop-twist, stop-bending kind of way. And then at the end, they all trained the test, the sit-up test. And the ones who didn't train the sit-ups but did heavy core training uh, did better and had less pain. So the, the evidence was starting to roll in uh, uh, a little bit. And uh, so now the uh, the Navy and the Air Force uh, has gone through the process, and the Army is going through it now. But uh, l- let's get back to your commando question and, and rucking and, and all that kind of thing. And look, I know why the military, uh, particularly the commandos, train rucking, rucking for brutal distances. It's the mental toughness. It's a wonderful drill for teaching soldiers, look, I'm going to take you to the edge of death. You won't die. You will be stronger for it. You know, I get all of that. And it's absolutely, look, these are killers. These are hard men. They have to be taken to the edge. And it's a great tool for doing that. But if they think that sit-ups is the way to do that, I think science has shown now that um it isn't and then again there's the internet warriors who are going to say well i do sit-ups i've never had a problem well just a second now now we get into anatomy uh size of the spine matters greatly architecture of the spine matters greatly i'm going to give you an analogy. Can you imagine if you take a slender willow branch, you can bend that willow branch back and forth with no stress. It will not break. It's fine. Now, I'm going to say, let's do the same thing with a thicker branch. You bend it once and it shatters and breaks because the stress in that branch is a function of its radial thickness. Now, let's take a very heavy boned, thick spined rugby player. You will find that they don't tolerate bending under load over and over again the way a slender boned gymnast would. They can can do it with uh, impunity, but they won't be lifting heavy weights and surviving as the prop on the rugby pitch. So once again, we have different architectures that are suited for different types of athleticism and they have different tolerances to, to training approaches. That's why there are so many different training approaches. So on average, if you want to enhance athleticism in the most resilient way to do things like rucking which there's no it's 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 wonderful for mental toughness it's wonderful for hardening the body but have a core stability foundation and mobile hips and all the rest of it and you'll create that wonderful ability without as i think we started this whole uh interview or or podcast talking about don't cross the tipping point. Absolutely. And that tipping point is different for everybody. And there's a reason why it's different. We're all, you know, you, you can't train the St. Bernard to win at the Greyhound track. <laughs> They're two different types of anatomy yeah. and you have to respect that variation that exists in the
0: human uh,
1: race. That's <laughs> anyway, there's a little bit of a, uh, a, a start on uh, all of that. That's
0: fantastic. I was, you say respect, uh, respect the individual. Awesome. Uh, awesome advice there. Well, we have almost uh, run out of time. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. I haven't quite got through all of my questions, but I'm going to finish with uh, with one more. Uh, and I never thought I'd say this to you, Stuart. Let's talk about sex, um, because <laughs> <laughs> because you know, we're, we're talking about uh, training and exercise and everything. And all of our listeners out there, they want a healthy, active uh, active life. They want to be able to train and everything. But sex is not something um, that is talked about very often. You know, people get embarrassed about it. Fair enough. Um, but i presume most people i certainly do uh they want a healthy active sex life and um you know spinal injuries, spinal health is seriously going to uh going to affect that what are the kind of injuries that are associated with sex and and what are the best ways to mitigate spinal pain
1: well the, you, the your listeners are probably wondering why in hell are you asking me that question well <laughs> um a, we, we we there is a reason yes there is we did the first study measuring spine load muscle activation stress etc during sex and the reason uh for it was this uh every primary care clinician will tell you that they if they have practiced long enough they will tell you that couples come to them and say we're celibate because the last time we had sex we knackered our back so badly we're fearful now we, we, we don't want to go through that whole pain thing again and uh, there's no guidelines at all that existed to guide clinicians on advice for how do you have sex in a way that won't trigger uh, disabling pain in some people. So that was our motivation. Uh, we took uh, couples and uh, we measured them in the lab. And I can tell you stories about that if you like, but uh, it <laughs> was not? done. All right. Well, uh, well, first of all, Uh, You can imagine the ethical concern and the risk to the university was huge. But thank goodness our university had the moxie to really support this kind of uh, research. The president of the university, uh, again, very uh, forward thinking uh, man, Uh, he, he got behind it. And, uh, we weren't allowed, obviously, to use anyone from the university community. You, you could imagine a parent, you know, calling up and saying, you know, is my child going to be asked to participate? And I had students coming up to me and saying, um, if we volunteer for the study, do we get to choose our partner? <laughs> (laughs) anyway but no of course not we had to uh, choose couples that were in a committed relationship it was a huge screening process and I might say this was all led by my graduate student Natalie Sadorkowitz, a very brave uh, graduate student uh, who who took this whole uh, thing on but the very first couple that we had in uh, again Natalie's mother but this is what you do as a scientist Uh, you can imagine how sexy this was the couples had to get instrumented with all of the instruments over their body measuring, you know, muscle activation, joint position, and all this sort of stuff. So a lot of it was Velcroed on. Well, <clears throat> we were in the laboratory. But there was a curtain around our little booth where we had all our uh, computer screens and whatnot, monitoring the, the, the couples. So we were watching on the computer screens, the muscle activation patterns and the motion patterns. Uh, but um, then, uh, you know, we, we, we heard the couple and uh, we, we saw the rhythmic activation patterns, et cetera, on the screens. And then it all stopped. And then they started to laugh and giggle and and of course we would see the the muscles uh contracting to the giggling and uh, we said is everything going on uh, is everything okay out there and they they started to laugh and they said oh we're stuck in velcro together <laughs> so the, the the velcro we had to re-engineer all of that so that they didn't stick themselves together <laughs> but that that was, was right. one of the first funny funny stories but uh, the bottom line of it all was uh, this um We uh, were able to create an atlas of motions and positions based on individual pain triggers. Now this atlas is available for clinicians. So what the clinician does is they measure the pain trigger in terms of offending motions, postures, and loads in the person. And then they look up on the chart and say, okay, you are extension intolerant. And sorry for saying this on the radio or on the podcast. I never thought I would, but avoid doggy style. (laughs) That would be. (laughs) But if you are flexion intolerant, doggy style would be for you. Um, And another rule that we came uh, up with is if the person is on top, they are responsible for the motion. The person on the bottom is responsible for buttressing their body joints into a buttressed position that avoids the pain trigger so again it doesn't matter whether it was male or female it was that we came up with these universal uh guidelines so anyway that was the whole motivation for the study it was uh, again it came from listening to patients and clinicians, what their problems were, and we said, "All right, we're going to solve uh, some of these problems." And you know, I was at the end of my career at this time. And there was, there was, uh, it was, it was the right time and the right uh, thing to do. Now. Uh, institutes like the, the the Kinsey Institute in the US that is sort of the repository of sexual health uh, science around the world, believe it or not, politically, they are not allowed to do that kind of investigation. Yeah. So they've partnered with us. Uh, yeah, no, in the States, it's incredibly conservative. Uh, you know, they uh, no university would take that risk. Someone would say, we're not using public funding to study sex. Or they, they, and they would lose government funding and uh, you know, so again, hats off to our university. To, uh Absolutely. But, but I, I will say this: um, the university obviously was interested in controlling the message, and uh, they all—all uh, all of the press releases were through the uh, uh, press publicity group uh, at the university. It was front page uh, in Costa Rica, Italy, China, Portugal. Um, in any case, if you added up the readership of the newspapers that this story was run, we even made the The economist on the front page of The Economist was the headline broke back mounting sex and Backache. <laughs> it was uh, it was title. it was fun, but you know we we touched one point four billion people if you just added up the readership of those so it was a very very successful um Uh, Study. But anyway, there's a few thoughts on that. And uh, maybe a nice way to finish off.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a perfect way to finish off. And uh, well done for doing that because I'm sure, I've no doubt, you've helped a hell of a lot of people. Uh, And that is mentioned, it is mentioned in your book, Back Mechanic, right? Some of that. uh...
1: It is. In the last chapter, we get into uh, questions that you were afraid to ask your doctor. (laughs) Uh, we we discuss there how to choose a mattress. Uh, we get into obviously uh, sex technique. Um, you know what type of clinician is is best for you. Uh, but yeah, those sorts of things. In any case,
0: so guys, if anyone out there yeah. listening is suffering with uh, any. Sexual health problems relating to the spine. If you Stewart's <laughs> book, Back Mechanic, it will give you some fantastic advice. Uh, also, for trainers, uh, there is Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. Uh, and also, if you want to know more about him, you can get yourself to www.backfitpro.com or follow him on Twitter. Not that he ever tweets. I think his last one was about 2014. Uh, yeah, no, Dr. don't go Super- to Twitter. Yeah. Don't f- forget social media. I'm, I'm not on it. <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we've, uh, I've learned tons. Of have no doubt the, li- the listeners have, have learned tons. Thank you for taking your time and speaking to us.
1: Yeah, Josh, look, thank you. Uh, I, you know what? I've had a, a lot of fun doing this with you. Me too. Yeah, you've got a really nice, uh, relaxed way. It's uh, a lot of fun. And you put me on the spot just enough to make (laughs) it uh, intriguing. So thank you very much.
0: (laughs) No problem. And I hope we can uh, can meet up when you come and do uh, the course at Joel's Facility and uh, have that beer.
1: Yeah. I, I, I look forward to that's what my life
0: is all about now. Have a, <laughs> yeah. do a little bit of science, help a few people and have a little bit of fun. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, have a great day and thank you guys for listening until next time. And there we go. An absolute ton of information and fantastic advice to take away there, uh, especially the part about back pain and sexual health. Not a subject that is talked about very often, but one that is really, really important. I think, um, Our everyday athletes out there, if you do suffer, guys, from low back pain or have suffered um, and you're not from a clinical background, I highly recommend Dr. McGill's book, Back Mechanic. It is really, really a great resource for you. Okay, coming up in next week's episode, I speak to Kate Solo, um, an OCR racer, endurance runner, and health coach with Precision Nutrition. She is an absolutely awesome lady, fantastic guest, and we have an absolute blast. So please do tune in for that. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on the Everyday Athlete Podcast. Be sure to check back
1: next week for another exciting episode. For a full breakdown of every show and links to resources mentioned, head on over to our website, www.realstrengthmatters.com. Seek adventure, be curious, train with purpose. Hashtag Everyday Athlete.
0: Everyday Athlete. Everyday Athlete.